Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Jesus Is. We will be looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made. Here's Pastor Nick. Again, please open to Gospel of John chapter 14. We're currently in a study where we're studying through Jesus' seven I am statements that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And so that's where we'll be continuing today with the fifth in this seven-week series. So please bow your heads with me, if you will, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you love us enough to speak to us and reveal yourself to us. And so, Lord, we want to dedicate this time. We want to dedicate our attention, dedicate our, our minds and our hearts over to hearing your word and receiving it. So, Lord, please help us that we would understand what it says, that we would be transformed by it, by your spirit at work through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I called up a friend of mine. Um, because I needed someone to talk to. See, I was worried and I was concerned because my daughter had been born and she was very sick. In fact, the doctors had said that there was a good chance that she wouldn't survive and that if she did, that she would be handicapped for life. And so I called up a friend of mine. He was a pastor in the States. We were living in Hungary at the time. And I told this pastor friend of mine what was going on and what, what was happening with our daughter. And here's what he said to me. He said, don't worry I'm sure everything will be just fine. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you and just say, when he said those words, it did not make me feel better. In fact, it made me actually pretty upset that he said that. Um, it made me mad because my daughter was in a coma, and she might not survive, and she might be handicapped for life. And the, the person is telling me not to worry. Like, everything will be just fine, probably. Right? He doesn't know that. He can't guarantee that. He's not God. He's not even a doctor. What if everything isn't fine? What if it doesn't turn out okay? It's easy for him to tell me not to worry. It's not his daughter in the hospital. Right? How many of you have ever been afraid or worried or you've been scared or maybe angry and some well-meaning person has come along and said, hey, don't be scared. Don't be angry. Don't be worried. You know, don't be anxious. And you said, problem solved. Thank you so much. That was what I needed to hear in order to fix my problem. Now that you told me not to feel that way, I no longer feel that way, right? Guys, you know how this works. Just telling someone not to feel a certain way doesn't change how they feel. The only way to change the way somebody feels about something is to give them a concrete reason to feel differently. In order to change the way that somebody feels about something, you have to give them new information that changes the way they see that situation because that changes the way they feel about the situation. But if you don't give them a reason to think differently about it, simply telling them to feel differently isn't going to have any effect on them. It's not going to work. You know, we live right now in troubling times, don't we? A recent poll came out from NBC News that shows that 72% of Americans right now believe that our country is headed in the wrong direction. There's a war going on in Ukraine. There's rumors of war going on elsewhere in the world. And maybe for some of you, you've got your own personal things in your life that are causing you to feel troubled because maybe your future is uncertain or things aren't working out the way that you hoped that they would. 
So what can we do in troubled times? What should we do with our troubled hearts? Does the Bible just tell us, like my friend did on the phone, don't worry, everything will probably be okay? Or does the Bible actually give us some concrete reasons why we can think differently about the world and about our lives and about the future? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus spoke to some people who had just received some news that they did not want to hear. And as a result, they were worried and anxious. They were sad and they were uncertain about the future. And what we're going to see in this chapter is how Jesus spoke to them and how he ministered to their troubled hearts to help them. The title of today's message is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what we're going to see in our passage today here in John chapter 14 is that in troubling times, we can have confidence and hope knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything we need for eternity and for this life as well. Every week I like to give you a sentence, and I'd love it if you'd write it down in your notes. Maybe if you keep a catalog of them, it would just be a, a record of what's taught in that passage. It can be a thought that you take with you as you go out of here and into your week today. So this is the thought and the idea. This is what this passage teaches us, and it'll also be our outline for studying it today. So in troubled times, we can have confidence and hope knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Every everything we need for eternity and for this life. So let's look at the first part of that. In troubled times. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and here's what he says. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, the setting in which Jesus said this is important. Like, why would Jesus tell them not to have troubled hearts? Well, the setting is found in chapter 13, the previous chapter, where we read that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and they're gathered in this large room to eat the Passover meal together. Now, when the disciples came there that evening, when they gathered in this room for this meal, what they didn't realize when they came into the room is that this was going to be the last time that they would eat a meal with Jesus before he died. You see, from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, everything that happens in those four chapters, it happens at the Last Supper. Four chapters. See, for John, as he writes this gospel, he's remembering. He was there when these things happened. It was seared into his memory. And for John, you know, the things that happened at the Last Supper, they were so significant, so meaningful, that as he's writing his gospel, he slows down. He says, hang on a second. Let me tell you in detail the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did at this Last Supper because they were really important you realize that in less than 24 hours from this point, when he says these things, in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead and in a grave. You see, so this section is called, from chapter 13 to chapter 17 in the Gospel of John, it's called the Farewell Discourse, because in chapter 13, Jesus just broke the news to his disciples that he is going away. That after tonight, they're not going to see him any longer. He's told them before that at some point he was going to die. But what he's just broke the news to them about is that that time for his departure has now come. And this news, it absolutely rocked them. It shook their world. Remember, just a few days before this, Jesus had received a hero's welcome into the city of Jerusalem. People had laid down palm branches to make a red carpet for him to enter into the city, and they embraced him as the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. 
And you can imagine the disciples in this moment. They were like, finally, right? Like, we've believed that he's the Messiah, but, but everybody else had their doubts. And now everything's starting to fall into place. Other people are starting to recognize what we've known all along, that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, you know, he's going to take his, his role as king, and we will go from being just like a, a bunch of nobodies we're going to now become highly respected, right? Like high-ranking officials in Jesus's cabinet, the new king. And you can imagine for years, right? They go back home on Christmas and Thanksgiving. Of course, they didn't do that, but you know what I'm saying. They go back home for Christmas and Thanksgiving. They sit there and then their mom and their dad would be like, all right, you're 30 years old now. When are you going to get a real job? Just following this guy around, hanging out with these 12 other guys. Keep hanging out with these other dudes. You're never going to meet a nice girl and get married and give us some grandkids. It's time to do something serious with your life, okay? Can't just keep following this guy around. You need to come back, get a job, settle down, right? And now, look at this. Jesus is going to be king. They're going to get positions of authority. They're probably like, yes, this is it. I get to say, I told you so. Check this out, dad, mom. Now are you proud of me? You know, now I'm not just following this guy around. Now I'm looking, I'm an important guy. It's worked out. Yes. We know that at the Last Supper, Luke's gospel tells us what the disciples were talking about. It says that they were arguing around the table at this evening, as this is starting, as the meal's beginning, they're beginning to talk. Oh, who's going to be the greatest among us? Who's going to be the, the minister of foreign affairs? Who's going to be the press secretary, right? Who's going to have which position in Jesus' cabinet? Who's going to sit at his right hand in the position of greatest authority, being his top assistant? But then Jesus breaks the news to them that rather than overthrowing the Romans, rather than kicking out the Romans, he was going to be killed by the Romans. And one of them was going to betray him. And all of them were going to fall away. Even Peter, the one who was so bold and so strong, even he would deny Jesus publicly three times. And that was all going to happen tonight. That wasn't what they had expected. And it was the last thing that they wanted to hear. Naturally, their hearts were troubled. Maybe some of you can relate to that. You had a plan for your life, but things have not gone according to your plan. Maybe you're troubled about things going on in the world. Maybe you're troubled about the way that things are going culturally or in society or even just in your life personally. What would Jesus say to you who have a troubled heart? Well, the first thing that Jesus says to them was, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, we can say without question, in this moment, the disciples certainly had troubled lives, didn't they? There was trouble in their lives, and if there wasn't yet, there was going to be in just a few hours' time. They had troubled lives. But here's what Jesus is telling them and us, and it's something very powerful. Jesus is saying that it's possible to have an untroubled heart even in the midst of a troubled life. You can have an untroubled heart even in the midst of a troubled life. You know, many people incorrectly assume that God's purpose for your life, his plan for your life, his goal must be for you to have an untroubled life. That whenever you face troubles, that God would just smooth them out, right? And make, the, make everything smooth and easy. That you would have an untroubled life. But listen, Jesus has the boldness and the honesty to look his disciples in the eye and say, in this life, you're going to have a lot of troubles. And yet, 
You can have an untroubled heart even in the midst of a troubled life. Have you ever seen someone like that? You ever experienced that, sat with someone who's got a troubled life, and yet in the midst of it, somehow they have an untroubled heart? Things in their life might be in crisis, and yet the peace of God is ruling in their hearts in such a way that they have an untroubled heart in the midst of their troubled life. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Don't you wish that you could have that? How do you get that? Well, Jesus tells us here. He says at the end of verse 1, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus was calling them to trust that God loved them, that God had the power to sustain them and carry them through whatever they faced, and that God had a plan, even if they couldn't see what it was. You see, by saying, believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus is calling them to trust in him in the same way that they trust in God and to trust that he is going to do something that is going to make things okay. But notice this. When Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, these are imperative statements, which means Jesus is telling them to do something. He's telling them to do something, which means that in a sense, these are things that you can choose to do. And now, starting in verse 2, Jesus is going to tell us why we can have confidence and hope even in the midst of troubling times. See, in troubling times, we can have confidence and hope. That's the second part of our sentence. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is talking about heaven. In other words, the key to keeping your heart from being overwhelmed by the troubles of this life is to remember that you have a home awaiting you in heaven. That's the key. In the midst of the troubles in this life, to, to keep from being overwhelmed and overcome by the troubles of this life, is to remember you have a home awaiting you in heaven. Friends, if heaven is real, then that changes the way we think and the way that we live here and now. And I want you to notice the incredible confidence with which Jesus speaks about heaven. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm going to die, and I hope that there's a big man upstairs, and I hope that he has a place for me. But we'll see. No. He has absolute confidence that heaven is real and that that is where he will go when he dies. Because Jesus told us in the first I am statement, Jesus said that he is the bread of life who has come down from heaven, he says in John 6, verse 38. He's been there. He's seen it. It's not a question. And Jesus tells his disciples, not only do I know that I am going to heaven when I leave this world, but the reason I need to die is in order to make a way for you to have a home in heaven as well. The purpose of my departure, he says, is to prepare a place for you. And then I will come back for you so that where I am, you may be also. The reason Jesus' disciples could have confidence and hope, even in the midst of troubling times, is because there's a home for them in heaven. Now, friends, this is true for you and me as well. Whatever difficulties, frustrations, anxieties you're experiencing right now, I want you to remember this. No matter what it is, it will not last forever. Do you know that? It will not last forever, whatever it is. Maybe you say, okay, maybe it won't last forever, but what if it ruins my life? Well, what if it changes the course of my life in a bad way? What if I make a wrong decision? In other words, maybe it won't last forever, but what if it ruins my life for the rest of the time I'm here? Again, friends, even your life, it will not last forever. 
And here's the thing. The end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. The Bible says that when the time for you to be done here on earth comes, you will not cease to exist. When your time here on earth is over, you will not cease to exist. Now, that isn't to say that everyone will go to heaven. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But if you are going to exist for eternity, that really puts your life into perspective, doesn't it? The 70, 80, maybe 90 years that you have here on earth, that's a very short time in light of eternity. It's like a drop of water in the ocean. Now, just because it's short doesn't mean it's not important. It's extremely important. The things you do in this life will have implications and impact for all of eternity. There are things you can do in this life which will make a difference for all of eternity for yourself or for other people. And yet, this life is very short, and it won't last forever. And those two truths, that this life is short and that the things you do in this life matter greatly, those two truths put everything else into incredible perspective. How should you use the short time you have here on earth? It also, by the way, affects the way that you feel about suffering and hardship. For the person who doesn't have the hope of heaven, for that person, the fleeting joys, the, the momentary good times that they experience here on earth, that is as good as it will ever get. But for the person who does have the hope of heaven, for that person, the hardships of this life are as bad as it will ever get. And those bad moments won't last forever. You know what hope is? Here, here's a definition of hope that I like. Hope is the confident expectation of coming good. The confident expectation of coming good. And so to have the hope of heaven is to know that no matter what is going on in your life right now, the best is yet to come. Rather than your best days being behind you, you have the confident expectation that the best is yet to come. And this is how the apostles encouraged the early Christians who were facing persecution and difficulty in their time by pointing them to the hope of heaven. See, in Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is why, he says, we do not lose heart. Because even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. And that's why... We fix our eyes not on the things that can be seen, but on the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, think about it just very practically. How would you encourage someone in Ukraine who has lost everything, who has nothing to go back to? What would you say, for example, to someone who has a terminal illness? How would you encourage someone who has a lifelong disability or handicap? Or how about a person who made a decision that altered the course of their life and not in a good way? You can't just say, don't worry, I'm sure it will probably be fine. Maybe it won't. You see, on the other hand, though, it's not just people who are in terrible situations who need this hope. It's not just people in terrible situations who need this hope. You know who needs this hope? Every single last one of us. Jesus asked one of the most piercing questions that's ever been asked in the history of the world when he asked this question. He said, what does a person benefit if they gain the whole world 
and yet lose their own soul? What does that benefit you? If you gain the whole world, if you're successful, if all of your dreams come true, if you're well off, what does that benefit you? You see, because here's the thing about life. The way that life works is this. If you live long enough, eventually you will lose everything. You will lose everything you love. You'll lose everyone you loved. You'll lose your hair, right? You'll lose everything you've ever worked for. And eventually you'll lose your life. You know, in attempting to answer the question, what is the goal and purpose of life? The uh, online magazine Psychology Today, they, they tried to give an answer to that question. So to the question, what is the goal and purpose of life? Here's what they said at Psychology Today. They said, the goal and purpose of life is to be happy or to feel fulfilled in your work or in your accomplishments. Friends, if that's it, if that's the goal and purpose of life, then we're in a lot of trouble because here's an example. A recent NBC poll showed that only 14% of Americans would say that they describe themselves as feeling happy. 14%. That's actually the lowest percent that that poll has ever shown in the past 50 years of them taking this poll. It's at an all-time low. Salary.com did a poll asking people, are you satisfied with your work and your accomplishments in life? 38% of people said yes. That's not looking good. And yet Jesus says that the, hope, that the key to having hope and confidence in the midst of this troubling world is knowing that you have a home in heaven. And so the question is, how do you get that hope? And how do you know if you will go to heaven? Well, that brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this. In troubling times, we can have confidence and hope knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, and you know the way where I am going. Right? He says, I'm going to my Father's house. I'm going to prepare a way for you. And you know the way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You see, the disciples would have understood that Jesus was talking about heaven. But Thomas asked a very good and a very important question. His question is essentially this. What is the way to get to heaven? What is the way to get to heaven? Now, that's a really important question. And I appreciate that Thomas asked it because far too many people assume that they will go to heaven when they die rather than asking the question, how do you get to heaven? Many people just assume that they will. You know, statistics show that most Americans believe that they will go to heaven when they die. In fact, more Americans believe that they will go to heaven when they die than Americans who believe in God or believe in heaven. In other words, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in heaven, but they're absolutely sure they'll go there when they die. What is that? But if you ask them the question, okay, you believe you're going to go to heaven. How are you going to get there? What does somebody need to do to go to heaven? You're going to get a series of answers, but basically they all narrow down to this. The way, well, they say, well, I'll go to heaven because, you know, you just got to be a good, good enough person. Or, or you got to have a good heart. Or you got to be well-intentioned. Or you got to do good things, right? If you're good things, that way you're bad things. But again, the question remains, well, how good do you have to be? On the other hand, how bad does someone have to be to disqualify themselves from going there? And how can you ever know if you've been good enough or if you were bad enough? So Thomas's question is the million-dollar question. What is the way to get to heaven? Jesus said to him, it says, verse 6, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to get to heaven, Jesus said, is not by being a good person. It's not by performing certain ritual, religious rituals or duties. The way to get to heaven, Jesus said, is through him. He is the way. Other religious leaders have come along throughout history, and they've claimed to say, I will show you the way to God, or I'll show you the way to salvation, the way to enlightenment. Jesus is different. Jesus comes and he says, I am the way. I'm not just here to point you in the right direction. I am the way. In other words, if you follow him, you will be on the right path. Not only did Jesus say that he's the way, but he also said that he is the truth. What is the truth that you need to believe in order to be saved? Jesus said, I am the truth that you need to believe. And the life that you seek, Jesus is that life. You see, all of history, everything in the Bible, everything that you desire in your heart of hearts, it is all pointing to, and it culminates in him. He is it. You need to look no further than Jesus. He is the answer to all of the riddles, all the conundrums, all the big questions of life. They find their answers in him. And notice that Jesus doesn't say that he is a way or a truth. He says he is the way, the truth, the life. It's a definite article. He doesn't just say he's one way amongst many other ways, and you can pick the one you like best. Or that he's one truth among many other truths. No, what he says here is very exclusive. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Now many people hear this and they balk at it. Because they might be okay with saying that Jesus is one legitimate way to God. But surely he can't be the only way. I mean, what about all the other religions out there? What about people who have their own way of seeking God? Jesus makes it very clear. And by the way, so does the rest of the Bible. For example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, here's what it says. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Galatians, he teases out this idea. He teases out the, the question, the idea, what if Jesus was just one way among many ways to be saved? What if you could be saved through another religion? Or what if you could be saved through just being a good enough person? What about that? And he teases that out, and here's his conclusion at the end of Galatians chapter 2. He says this, listen, if there was any other way for you to be saved, if you could be saved by being good enough, if you could be saved by, by doing enough things or doing the right things, then if that's the case, then Jesus died in vain. In other words, Jesus was a fool to go to the cross, to waste his time coming to earth and doing all the things he did because he died in vain. He didn't need to. It was unnecessary. And you could save yourself. If you could save yourself, if, you, if there was another way to be saved, then Jesus died in vain. He was just wasting his time. But if Jesus is not just a way to be saved, but if he is the way to be saved then what you believe about Jesus and what you do with Jesus is absolutely crucial. It's critical. It's more than life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell. You see, what Jesus is telling us here is not only that heaven is real, but that not everybody is going to go to heaven. 
Not everybody's going to go to heaven. And yet, because of God's grace and because of his love, God has made a way for you to come to him and to spend eternity with him through Jesus. But not everybody's going to go to heaven. So how do you know if you are going to go to heaven? How do you get to heaven? Again, the answer is Jesus. He's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You can come to the Father through him. But that's not the only thing that this means for us. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, which is this. In troubling times, we can have confidence and hope, knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything we need for eternity and for this life as well. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you? Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What Jesus is saying is that the reason why he is the way to God is because he is God. Although he is distinct from the Father, his identity, his being is so bound up with the Father, so united to the Father, that he can say that I and the Father, we are one. When Jesus speaks, in other words, God is speaking. When Jesus acts, his actions are the actions of God. Again, this is a common theme throughout all of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus is making it clear that he is not just a messenger from God, but he is God come to us to be our Savior, so that through him we might be forgiven of our sins, we might receive new life and a new future forever. In verse 11, Jesus says, Look, you don't just have to take it on my word. You can also look at my actions. If you want to know if I really am God, don't just listen to what I say. Take a look at what I do. Healing lepers, raising the dead, forgiving sins. These are things that only God can do. But look at what Jesus says next in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What Jesus is saying here is that he did not only come so that you can go to heaven when you die. He also came to give your life a whole new meaning and purpose and direction here and now. As a person walking in the way of Jesus, do you know this? Your life has a calling. Your life has a calling. Your calling is to do his works in the world until he comes. And Jesus promises to empower you to do those things. In verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples that they will do greater works than he did. That's an incredible statement because Jesus did some amazing things. So how is that even possible? Well, here's how it's possible. Because what Jesus is saying is not that his followers would do more sensational miracles than the miracles he performed. Rather, he's saying that they would do works that would be greater in magnitude than the works he did. For example, it's one thing to heal a person of leprosy and 
temporarily prolong their life. But it's a greater thing to share with someone the good news of salvation, which can save their soul. See, that's the privilege that we have as followers of Jesus doing his work in the world today. And Jesus says, as you live your life to glorify me, ask whatever you want in my name and I will do it. Now, Jesus is telling them that they will have a way to communicate with him even after he has left them physically. Because he is God, they can pray to him and he will answer their prayers. And whatever they ask for in his name, he will give it to them. You see, the same promise applies to us. It's important, though, to understand that praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean just tacking the words in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, like over and out, good buddy, bye, signing off. It's, not, it's not also not the magic words with which you tap the magic wand and say, in Jesus' name, abracadabra. It's not the magic words that makes whatever you want come true. No, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to his authority and according to his desires. Kind of like if I asked you to go to the post office for me to pick up a package, or if you asked me to go and deliver some official papers to an office for you in your name, right? You would be asking me to act on your authority according to your will and according to your desires, so to pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to Jesus' will, according to his desires, by his authority. And if you pray in that way, he will give you what you ask for. Now here's the point, though. Jesus isn't only everything you need for eternal life. He's also everything you need for this life as well. For you who need direction, he is the way. For you who need truth in the midst of the confusion and all the conflicting opinions in this world, he is the truth. For you who feel dead inside and don't know if you can go on, he is the life. He is everything you need for eternity and for this life as well. But the question is, how do you make this your own? How do you go from just knowing about it and saying, yeah, that sounds good, to actually experiencing these things for yourself? How can you have this hope so you can have this direction, so you can experience this relationship with God? Again, the answer is that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Since Jesus is the way, the way to get these things is by following him, by becoming a disciple, a student of him who listens to his words and obeys what he says. Since Jesus is the truth, the way to get these things is to believe in him. To believe in him means to trust him. It means to trust in and rely on and cling to him and what he has done to save you. That he, Jesus, as God became one of us, and even though he was tempted in all the same ways that we are tempted, he did not sin. He's the only person who ever lived a truly righteous life. And by doing so, he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. And he did that for you on your behalf. And then he gave his life in order to make a way for you to go to heaven by taking the judgment for your sins upon himself on the cross and then rising again and ascending into heaven. And because of what he did, if you believe in him, if you trust in what he did for you, then the result is that you will receive life in him. That's what John says at the end of the gospel there in chapter 20. Rather than being dead spiritually, you will come alive in him. 
And when this life is over, you will have eternal life in him. That's the hope of the gospel. And that hope can be yours today. So I want to encourage you to follow him, to believe in him, so that you can experience full, true, meaningful, and everlasting life in him. Friends, in troubling times, we can have confidence and hope knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, everything we need for eternity and for this life as well. Would you please bow your heads and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.